Alright, if the institutional church is the grand institution, uh, setting the model for all, all other institutions, how do we, as an institution, sort of find ourselves applying, interacting, engaging other institutions? My focus here on the second talk is on the distinctive roles of men and women, not so much in the liturgical context, but firmly grounded in the liturgical context. That's another, another discussion. Uh, does the Bible set the ground rules within the church for husbands and wives? And the answer is that there are liturgical dynamics for the home that are actually given, structured, and ordered by the church. In other words, if the premise is that the church is the fundamental institution, if that premise holds, then the church's rules for men and women ought to have repercussions for the family unit as well. Now, we are working right now through a commentary on 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, and that whole section that emphasizes the role of men and women, and it'll be focusing on the liturgical sexes, the way that men and women function within the body. This is just a little bit, a little bit of that dynamic beginning in, in chapter 11. We begin in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians because it is rooted in all sorts of creational types and creational patterns. And I think what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 11 is he's truly setting a pattern for how men and women are to function. And it's far more important than the kind of secondary issues that most of us in our culture would want to focus on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a theology of the sexes. It's given to us as a way to deal with the kinds of problems that we are focusing in our own culture now, as you may see. Sexual confusion abounds. We know that. Gender confusion abounds on university campuses. Secular campuses in our day, which are known for their increasing capacity for stupidity, secular campuses make a habit, as you know, of excommunicating speakers uh, who observe things like the distinctions and differences between men and women. Conservative speakers are, in our day, you've maybe seen this with the Daily Wire and other shows, where conservative speakers like Michael Knowles and Ben Shapiro, they're threatened, they're assaulted by protesters on college campuses. You saw an example of this of one of our own with, with Douglas Wilson, who went to the University of Idaho to talk about uh, very calmly, very logically, about the distinction between a man and a woman and the roles they ought to take. And right at that moment, the hecklers and the hooligans, they begin acting as if they were being tormented by demons. And <laughs> fill in the blanks. What we see today is unprecedented. Matters of sexuality, marriage are all under assault in our culture. We live in a social experiment, a social imaginary of confusion. Our society today in the United States and certainly in Europe are publicly approving of sex outside of marriage, homosexual marriage, and marriage without distinction, which is the conservative confusion on this conversation here. In other words... What these churches are saying is that men and women exercise their function as they see fit and that there are no distinguished differentials between men and women, that they, again, back to the conversation about individualism, that they, again, get to identify themselves as they see fit, not as some ancient book would demand of them. They get to identify their own roles. They get to create their own roles. They're not thinking through the distinctions in the scriptures because they believe that the Bible does not present us norms to engage these distinctions. And the result, of course, is confusion about what it means to be human. And what it does is it devastates children, as you have seen in our day, and it creates a TikTok culture where chaos abounds. Isn't it true? It creates a TikTok culture 
where chaos abounds. And we may have seen this recently, that some of the folks invested in TikTok have, have made these declarations uh, to, to, to everyone, said, please do not download this app. Young children with perfectly everyday lives now live as if they need to adjust to the norms of sexuality. They may be bullied a little bit over here, but all they need is to find one YouTube channel that reflects their current confusion, and immediately they say, you know what? I was never meant to be a boy. They're disappearing from the scene. The disorder abounds everywhere, and it abounds everywhere because men in our culture are disappearing. They're not where they should be. Men are choosing a life of perpetual singleness. In our day, men are growing older without growing up. And at a parental level, there's certainly a father famine in our culture, but at a parental level, the men are forsaking their own responsibilities to raise boys with absolutely no sense of hard work whatsoever. They call it the gamer generation. As Neil Postman wrote, they amuse themselves to death, and in this case, they amuse themselves to their mental deaths. We're seeing also a rise in female promiscuity. You may have said, well, this has always happened in the history of the church. It's true, it's happened, but today it's much more public. The confusion is out there about what roles a woman should have in society. Are women pieces of the professional puzzle? Are they called to go out and conquer? Are Christian women modeling themselves unintentionally as proto-feminists? So I want to focus just for a few minutes here on the on the nature of this text and how it addresses men and women uh, directly. Some years ago, I was doing a wedding in, in Florida, and I mentioned a quotation from the Apostle Peter, who said that wives should submit to their husbands. I mentioned that in my homily. And after that, the bridesmaids took the bride to a specific room as they were changing, getting ready for the wedding reception. And they rebuked, they mocked, they ridiculed the bride for having the audacity to invite a minister or a priest, to their wedding ceremony, and he used the word submission. Submission. But how does the Bible view submission? Submission is something beautiful. But typically, when you hear criticisms of biblical idea of submission, sometimes in our evangelical conservative culture, it comes from women who have experienced enormous abuse. There's an allergy to that language. They've experienced abuse from husbands, or perhaps they've never understood how the Bible uses the word. And what I'm contending here is that if the idea of submission is to be understood as Paul defines it, I think there will be less of a dismissal of the term. The question of submission has to do with headship. Submission and headship come in the same sentence. They're part of the same puzzle. Submitting to headship looks a certain way for the Apostle Paul. This is what he says in Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This text is not barbaric, as the feminists of the 1960s were saying. Paul says that the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Where does Paul ground Headship and submission. He grounds it in the relationship between the father and the son. In other words, the way to understand a man's headship over his wife is to see how the father exercised headship over his son in his earthly ministry. Now, obviously, there's a mutuality of respect. There's a mutuality of honor. There's a mutuality of grace between the father and the son. But both can't be heads. So, 
Men and women are different. Robert Capon once said it this way here, men and women are one species, but barely. <laughs> we're different, not just biologically, but we're also different in the way we view the world, different in the way we communicate. There are exceptions, of course, but the rule is that in the marriage counseling, what men typically do when they come to my rooms, they come with a list of propositions, and women come with a list of topics for dialogue. Men are by nature monological, and women are dialogical. We need that kind, that's the nature of things, and when these things don't function this way, that's just how we are created, and sometimes when those roles are reversed, there, there are problems. Men make pronouncements, and women beautify or moderate our pronouncements. My wife knows that very well. We're equal. We're not equivalent. Maleness and femaleness are not just biological, but they're theological categories in the sacred scriptures. God makes us different because he has made us to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And in this passage, the relationship between the Father and the Son. So what does it mean for the men here to be head of their wives? And the language here is very interesting because the language of headship implies the language of coverage. The language of covering. The language of being a cover over her. The man is in armor of protection for the wife. And it's not a negative thing because to be head implies that someone is covering or caring for another just as the father covers and cares for another, his son, the head, who is Christ, our Lord. The Bible says that men are the head of the family, which is grounded in this Trinitarian relationship. It's the key to everything. So that our differences are not grounded in how the culture defines it, but it is grounded on the culture of heaven. It is grounded in how God defines it. And because that's the case, so how do we make the analogy? How do we sort of connect the Pauline dots that he lays for us in 1 Corinthians 11? How is the headship of the Father exercised over Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry? We know that there is complete equality between the Father and the Son. We know that. And therefore, there's complete equality between a husband and a wife. That in itself would undo a lot of misconception, for sure. Male headship does not mean greater in worth, does not mean greater in value. In fact, if you say that male headship means that a man is superior to his wife, then you must say that the father is superior to the son, which makes you a heretic. <laughs> Jesus is under the headship of the father in his earthly ministry, but he is equal to the father. He is equal, but he has a different role, a different function in his equality. And if you say that, a, that man and woman are just the same with no distinction, you have to say the Father and the Son are just the same with no distinction. That would make you a modalist. And that's also a bad thing. They're equal in power and glory, but have different functions in the Godhead. In essence, uh, male chauvinism, for lack of a better word, which says that man is superior to woman, is heretical. And feminism, which says that there is no difference between men and women, is also heretical. The model for headship that the Apostle Paul develops in 1 Corinthians is found in how the Father relates to the Son. And here at this point, we don't need to enter into the realm of speculation because we know we have gospel narratives in precisely how the Father engaged the Son and how the Son engaged the Father. The Father exercises his headship by loving, by serving, by exalting, by rejoicing in the Son. That is the root of headship theology. The soul of masculinity 
is found when husbands love their wives sacrificially and lovingly. Headship is not bossing your wife around. It's not a master-slave relationship, as some patriarchal groups talk. Men, you don't get to put demands on your wife, treating her like a child. You're not smarter than your wife because you have several degrees that she may not have. You're not more capable because of your strength. And it doesn't mean, surely it doesn't mean, that you are somehow a mediator between God and your wife because of your headship. God doesn't hand you grace so that you can say, now honey, here's what God has given me, let me dispense it to you now. No, no, your wife receives grace from God directly. The father manifests his headship by glorifying the son, so too the head is to glorify the wife. You are both, men and women, co-heirs of grace, worthy recipients of bread and wine and word, and the man's role is to delight in his wife. That is what it means to be a masculine. That is what it means to be a man, to be a head, to delight in his wife as the father delights in his son. To be head means that the primary responsibility to lead falls on you. And we see this that when Eve sinned in the garden, whom did God seek? It was Adam. That's why C.S. Lewis refers to the nature of this dynamic between father and son as a dance in many ways, which is very appropriate, isn't it, for men and women. A man leads and the woman follows. So how are you going to lead men? The question is not when will you lead, but how are you leading? Well, you and your wife, you get into an argument, and who is the first to repent? Who? Who is the first to confess? Who is the first to seek forgiveness? Who? That's your job, husbands. And young men need to prepare for that phase of history. It is your job in the home. Who deals with disobedience in your children? Do you just hand over all those responsibilities in the hands of your wife? If so, that's an abdication of your headship role. Your headship does not leave you autonomous. You have a head too. Don't forget that. Your head is Jesus Christ. You are accountable to him. You are answerable to Jesus as you lead your wife and your family. And the men in our culture, I'm so grateful for the kind of men that are coming to our ecclesiastical cultures uh, here in Pennsylvania and in Florida. But the men in our culture, the men who are trying to find their way through culture, are finding gurus everywhere. And I'm grateful for gurus like Jordan Peterson and others. But the true sources of wisdom must be the other men in the church. The, people cannot, the men cannot find true wisdom if they find secular gurus. And the reason they're seeking them out is because the men in our culture are weak. They're big kids raising kids to be big kids. Now tell me, how many women would have loved to have heard from their fathers when they were growing up, when they were younger? Honey, it's not wise for you to wear that. Or sweetheart, let's go out for some ice cream. Or, sweetie, how can I help you today? What can I do for you? How much do you think those words would mean to a sexually immoral generation of women? How many have grown, how many grown men would have loved to hear their dad say firmly, son, you're not going to watch that when you think you want to watch it. Or son, you need to get a job during the summer. Instead, we are raising fatherless children, even though fathers may still be present in the home. One of the things that I do with my daughter most nights uh, when, uh, when we're saying goodnight and singing together, I will say, sweetheart, do I have your heart? In the beginning, she would say, what do you mean, daddy? Do I have your heart? Do I have your trust? Is your impulse 
to trust in your father, to trust in daddy. That's true headship in leading not only our wives, but also those over us in bringing our children nearer to our hearts. And all of us, myself included, certainly, we fail in that task. And sometimes we give reason to doubt whether they should trust our hearts or not. But the reason to doubt will only linger if we are unrepentant fathers, you see. The trust will return immediately if we are repentant fathers. We see examples of masculinity through the Bible. Certainly, an example of, of King David is a great example. David kills a giant, but he's also the man who laments in the Psalter, and he repents of his deepest sin. Male headship is self-controlled, hard-working, leading in love, humble and understanding, and very importantly, eager to repent. A happy home is a repentant home. If that is not the paradigm of repentance at home, children will grow up to be proud. If we are godly men, if we desire the good of our families, the good of our wives, and what it means to be truly ahead of the home, we begin in the steps of humility and in repentance. With the fathers to the son, the son is to, should be to the wife. A man leads the dance, and the woman will follow in the footsteps of that head, of that leader. Now, what kind of dance are you going to have in your home? It's going to be like a Brazilian samba. Wild, no structure, no order kind of a jazzy experience, or there's going to be something with order and decency and beauty that when people walk into it, they will say, behold, this is a good home to dance in. This is for the young men, too, who are present here. Are you preparing yourself for the future wife that you'll have one day? What's your view of leadership? How has your understanding of masculinity been shaped by secular forces out there? Is it shaped by the Trinity or the latest sitcom you just watched? Male headship leads the wife and family to the table in humility. It dies so that our wives may live. This is communicated in the liturgy of the church. The reason Paul addresses male headship in worship is that it's fundamental that men embrace their roles in the home. If their, if their parts at home are dysfunctional, if their leadership in dancing is dysfunctional, and their roles in the church are going to lack harmony. They're going to be the first ones to add confusion and bring problems and embrace the negative world within the church. Dysfunctional husbands are a harm to the worship of the church. If they can minimize their headship, they can minimize the headship of Jesus. Man is the head. He's not the head to abuse. He's the head to serve and love. But Paul also addresses the placement of women in the liturgy of the church. Verse 7 for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This Paul delving now into significant liturgical roles, which is going to develop later in chapter 14. But he wants to root our maleness and femaleness, not in cultural paradigms, but in the paradigm of scriptures and the creational pattern because Paul is a creational theologian. He is an expert in Genesis and Genesis is very deeply embedded in Paul's ecclesiology. You'll note this here. He goes back to creation because it was in the garden where that first order, where that first chronology was given, where that first paradigm of worship and temple was given. Paul is building his case from the creative order here. 
And evidently, these were the questions that this young Corinthian church had because they were deeply curious to see how these things would function within the order of the church and the home here. So Paul goes to the first account of male and female. He doesn't go to Greek philosophy. He doesn't go to cultural paradigms in the first century. But he goes to God's day six of creation. Paul says that woman is created for man and that she is the glory of men. What does he mean by that? Well, you remember, in Genesis, the Bible says that man was created first, and then woman. There is a significance to that order. It wasn't in vain. It wasn't as if God just desired for no purpose, ex nihilo, to create man. No, it's because there was a particular order, and Paul was echoing this order. Creation is going to move from glory to glory, from one stage to the other. It starts empty. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. But then God begins to fill that emptiness. He begins to fill it with things. And when does glory come in the creation account? Glory comes in the last day, in the sixth day. It's the culmination of everything. What happened in the creation of man and woman? Well, man was created from dirt, which is what it literally means. Man is dirt. Man is... Dirt, glorified dirt. The woman is made from man. Remember, God puts Adam to sleep and it creates the woman from his side. God is the great father who walks down his daughter through the aisle and gives his daughter to the first man, to Adam. Now, if man means dirt, what does woman mean? Woman means Fire. My old Sunday school teacher was very fond of reminding us. He would say, man, you are dirt bags. <laughs> Women, you are fire. We need dirt. We need fire. But every one of you will affirm that fire is more glorious than dirt. We need the dirt. We need the fire. But fire is more glorious than dirt. The Bible speaks of that, right? It speaks of a refiner's fire. Fire does all sorts of glorious things in the Bible. Fire purifies. God is a consuming fire because his glory brings equity and justice to all the earth. The sacrificial systems were not based on dirt. They were based on fire. Ascension offerings become acceptable sacrifices. They're pleasing aroma to our God. So the pattern is evident. God doesn't look at men and say, he doesn't look at men and say, behold, how glorious. But he does look at woman and say, you are glory. You are now the formation of everything I desire for my creation. Now everything is very good. Now you two can be a communion of equals, a partnership of mutuality, a relationship of image bearers. And that's why Adam pours his first poem in Genesis chapter 2. The first poem was poured out in speech, and the timing couldn't have been more astute. Adam was a speechwriter, a poet, deliverer at the very face of glory itself. Adam's poem, we could say, was a response to glory. Note that for Adam, the union was solidified in glory. What does he say? At last. When everything was still incomplete, at last. This is bone of my bones. Implying, this is now someone who can share in my strength. Adam was the great king of the garden. But his wife shared in his reign. His, his headship wasn't a justification for self-exaltation. It was a, a justification for self-sharing, self-giving. And this is clear in the use of the phrase, by the way, in the poetry that Adam poses here. Bone of my bones. The kind of language that is played out again and again in Israel's history. 
The people of God, when they submitted to the king by sharing in his glory, by sharing in his grief, the people of God say precisely that. We are now your bone and your flesh. We're now bound together, committing to one another to fight for one another, to being in unity, in communion, and being in communion in unity for the worship of God. For Adam to declare this was for him to affirm that Eve is not just one among many, but he's very much a part of him. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shares in his strength. Their union is unbreakable like a fortified home. Her body belongs to him and his body belongs to her. Bone of my bones. At last, our communion, dirt and fire come together in this solidified vow. Adam was receiving glory, and now this glory is completed. And now his maleness is complete. So it's, it's true, you know. Every man marries up because he's marrying someone more glorious than himself. That's the reality here. We, we experience this season of great uh, season in our church life where this wedding is like every other weekend. And I tell, I tell all the kids who come from Middle Council, I'd say, there's only two things that people care about in a wedding. Was there enough food? And was the bride glorious? Was there enough food? Was the bride glorious? Everyone's looking at the bride. Everyone's looking at her glory. She's a center of the tension because her glory is evident. Paul calls the woman the glory of man because it is the order of creation. She is the last thing to be created, not because she was some final throw-in or addendum or a footnote, but because she was the way God completes beauty and the way he completes his orchestral creation. She's made to complete man, to finish what man starts. And in life, this reflects the fact that men are leaders and women are completers. That's how God designed us to be. Women, your goal is to glorify things. And husband, if your wife is your glory, then you need to grasp what that glory entails. What does it mean? I love the language of Proverbs chapter 12. It says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. It's a perfect definition of glory. Glory is a crown. And a king views his crown as his glory. It gives him honor, doesn't it? That's why Proverbs 31 says that the virtuous woman is more valuable than rubies. She's more glorious than earthly treasures. The wife is to the man what the Shekinah glory is to the tabernacle. Remember how Israel protected the glory of the tabernacle? Remember their, their jealousy to protect the glory of the tabernacle? Israel cared. Israel elevated the reputation of that glory. So men, you are to guard what Adam failed to guard. You are to guard what Adam failed to guard. In the account of Genesis chapter 3, remember the account of the fall? And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Can you imagine a more condemning passage than what we see in Genesis chapter 3. While Eve was being tempted, Adam was there. He may have been sitting with a tiger, eating a delicious bite of a guava fruit or something. But the Bible says he was there. The language indicates he heard. He saw everything. He was a liturgical observer when he should have been a liturgical participant. That's the problem. He abdicated his role and he failed to enter into the dance, into the liturgy of man and woman. And so for us, men, 
We need to communicate to our wives that she is our glory by leading her to green pastures, by showing our appreciation for her companionship, for her abilities, for her inherent glory. When you love her, you find she finds the security she needs to be the woman she was called to be and the glory she was created to show. And the application here is the application I tell very often to the men in my congregation. Never stop pursuing her. Make her tired of hearing how much you love her and appreciate her glory in your life. Make her sad to see you leave and delighted when you show up again. Ladies, to be your husband's glory, of course, comes with responsibilities. It comes with responsibilities. Ephesians 5 makes them very clear for us. You are to respect your husband, respect his headship, honoring him in private and in public. And this is not a, a black and white statement because there are women, perhaps even here, who may be divorced or single or even live with husbands that are not faithful husbands or heads as they should be. The Bible has something to say about all these circumstances here. We're talking about the ordinary scenario in the home where the Bible speaks very clearly. We're talking about honoring and respecting husbands who show a pattern of faithfulness through marriage. And this honor and respect begins in the home. Feminism's problem is that it taught an entire generation of women that the domestic life, the life of motherhood, is a waste of feminine power. But the Bible views it as a manifestation of glory. They degraded, as so many do today, the clear biblical role that women have in their home. They were not fighting for equal opportunity. That's a myth. Feminists were not fighting for equal opportunity. They were demeaning your natural affections for your home. In the middle of all the diaper changing, the 2 o'clock nursing, in the middle of that, it's important for moms to understand that what you do in your home is significant. You are the glory of your home. Have you ever seen a college dorm filled with men? It is like the... the it's dirt, exactly. It's the... Oh, I love it. It's the apex of filth, isn't it? It's the, there's no beauty. There's nothing there. There's a reason it's called a man cave. It's solitary and filthy. Women is the glory of their home. And they beautify the home by honoring their husbands. By honoring their husbands. Titus chapter 2. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home or lovers at the home, to be kind, be subject to their own husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Wow. The way to, for society to honor the word of God is by seeing women who love their calling, who love their calling. Feminism's theory maligns the word of God. That's how you know it's false. To be a homemaker, to be a mother, today, 2023, one of the most heroic things that can happen. Incredibly counterculture, incredibly. I mean, you think motherhood is going to be praised in college campuses today? If a woman says, I want to get a college degree so I can be a good mother, what are people going to say? When I was in college, we went to this uh, Presbyterian church where several of the women, women had PhDs, but decided to homeschool their children 
Imagine the vitriol of the left towards these studious, intelligent, beautiful, glorious women who use their training to educate their own children, to be lovers of the home, to train younger women in the congregation. If a woman says she wants to get married and raise children, she's going to be mocked. Our culture will tell you, moms, domestic life, trivial. The only job that matters is the professional, the outside-the-home job. But I want to say that even if you are a secretary of state, a professor of the most prestigious institution in the country, Time Magazine Woman of the Year, Woman of the Year, because of an invention or whatever, nothing in God's eyes is more important than your role at home. It's what you're created to do and be. You were made to glorify your garden, your kingdom. And the irony of feminism is that they urge women to stop being submissive to their husbands and then be submissive to some random chauvinist or some immoral business CEO or even similar to another woman outside the home. And that's why feminism has always to morph again and again to make sense out of that conundrum. Moms, you may feel utterly discouraged in your task at times. And perhaps even that what you're doing is unimportant. You may feel that way, but I can assure you what you're doing is admirable and glorious and it elevates the authority of the Bible in the whole world in your community. It's world-changing. The Apostle Paul wants you to make the most of your gifts and ability. The Apostle Paul is not interested in giving you rules of what to do, but he would say, understand the glory of your role. As a wife, and then later as a mother, you are the glory of man in the home. Without you, that home would surely perish. Your role is valuable. Now, I understand some women get discouraged. They don't see fruit in their labors as mothers in the home. But that's usually because she doesn't grasp the glory of what God called her to be and do. And husbands have failed in many ways to stress, to promote, to proclaim that glory. Your wife's work needs to be recognized as glorious. Encourage her often in this task here. What you do, honey, is glorious. God sees the raising of children, the job of a homemaker, as the most significant thing a woman can do. And I'll say it again. I, I think there's some freedom to work outside the home when the children are still under the roof, their financial necessities, their stages of life. I grant all these things. But whatever job that may be, it pales in comparison to the glory of your work at home. It pales. It's true you're not going to receive the praise and honor from other people. And sometimes the, their praise cannot even be uttered by certain little humans in your home. Think about it. Do you think child rearing keeps office hours? Man, your job is no matter how dangerous, it's actually easy in comparison to the, to the profession of glory that women have. And I know this because you tell me stories about how heroic you were when you kept the kids by yourself for three hours on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> you were mighty, mighty proud of yourself, weren't you? Did you see what I did, Herb? For three hours, I kept them from killing each other. <laughs> three hours. Three whole hours. There's a, a Spanish saying in, the, in South America, an ounce of mother is worth a ton of priests. Not even the spiritual and theological heart of a pastor can do what you do, uh, can do what a mother does for her children. I wanna, let me summarize this idea very quickly here. For a wife and a mother, we shouldn't say your place is in the home. Instead, what we say is your, your priority is in the home. 
It is there where your glory is going to be accentuated. Submission is not a demand God has for you. It's not some kind of extracurricular activity that you ought to pursue as a woman. Submission is a gift on behalf of God to your husband. Homemaking, child rearing is, especially in our day, the most counter-cultural thing you can do and the most biblical response you can give to a world that wants to erase gender roles and seduce you to thinking that your professional pursuits are more important and fruitful than raising covenant children for the glory of God. To be a mother is to be one of the most countercultural things in our day, is to raise kings and knights, pastors and painters, teachers and tire inspectors, is to teach glory and beauty to a world committed to disorder. To be a mother is to learn the art of patience, the skill of a master communicator, the assessment of a crisis manager, the passion of an artist, the knowledge of a nurse. It really is the most holistic of all human endeavors. The most. Women, you are the glory of men because you are the completer. You are the last of God's creational acts because you are the one who closed the creational narrative in glory. I hope that you will grasp your glory, see your glory, live your glory in the home, in the church, in the world. The church-friendly family begins to operate as God intended when the role of men and women are harmonized in the work of the church. If men and women, if they are guided by what we spoke in the first lecture, if they are guided by the rituals of the church, the life of the church, the time of the church, the Catholicity of the church, if men and women follow that model through toils and snares, through repentance and glory, if they are sustained by the operating manual of maleness and femaleness as God described, I believe we can begin to see a more deeply Trinitarian life functioning for the good of the family. Our God and our Father, may you teach us your ways. May the men and women here recognize the significance of their lives in this community. May they see it. May they go back to their homes. May they delight in their wives. May wives desire the good of their husbands by submitting to them, by pursuing the good May the men here find repentance to be their friend rather than their enemy. May wives submit of bitterness, complaint. May men find refuge in the God who shows mercy. May they surrender to the God who justifies them in their bitterness, in their angry outburst, in their unnecessary volume. May you guide male and female, the men and women seated here, the young men, the young women pursuing marriage one day, even those who are single, may you guide them all to see their role as fundamentally that which is attached to the liturgy of the church, fundamentally as worshiping men and worshiping women, desiring the good of the church and the success of all their endeavors. Bless us, we pray, through Jesus Christ, our great head. Amen.